0: For Kazuo Ishiguro, who won the 2017 Nobel Prize in Literature, writing is a small, private affair. One person writes in a quiet room, trying to connect with another person who reads in another quiet room.
1: Stories can entertain, sometimes teach, or argue a point. But for me, the essential thing is that they communicate feelings that they appeal to what we share as human beings across our borders and divides. There are large glamorous industries around stories, the book industry, the movie industry, the television industry, the theater industry. But in the end, stories about one person saying to another, this is the way it feels to me. Can you understand what I'm saying? Does it also feel that way to you? That's what my work is about. That's what I keep trying to do.
0: The Nobel Prize in Literature is given for a writer's entire body of work. Kazuo Ishiguro's includes The Remains of the Day, Never Let Me Go, and The Buried Giant. As a writer, he has said, he's more interested in what people tell themselves happened rather than what actually happened. Here's what the Nobel Committee had to say. The Nobel Prize in Literature 2017 is awarded
2: to the English writer Kazuo Ishiguro, who in novels of great emotional force has uncovered the abyss beneath our illusory sense of connection with the world.
0: Kazuo Ishiguro, one of the world's greatest and most thoughtful writers, is the featured guest on today's episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam this child is gifted. And I heard that
3: enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance.
0: It all was so clear. It it was just
3: like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth, darkness over light, death over life.
0: Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. Decide. Decide.
2: Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there.
1: (laughs) And then along come these differential
2: experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, But boy, you better
3: not miss him.
0: Kazuo Ishiguro was 35 when his third novel, The Remains of the Day, was published and became a worldwide sensation. It won the Booker Prize, one of the most prestigious awards, and it was turned into an Academy Award-nominated movie with Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson. And it made Kazuo Ishiguro a household name, at least in book-loving households. He came to the Academy of Achievement Summit in the fall of 2017, just a week and a half after learning he'd won the Nobel Prize. And in a talk he gave at the summit, he recounted the beginnings of his life as a writer.
1: Summer, 1979, I was 24 years old and I spent the past six months working as a volunteer in a hostel for homeless people in Notting Hill, London. I was not at this point a writer, never mind a good one. My ambition was to write wonderful songs like Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell. But now, to my surprise, i had been accepted on a creative writing masters at the University of East Anglia. The course was to start that autumn and my classmates, I was certain, would all turn out to be intimidatingly brilliant. Apart from my songs, I'd written a radio drama, which had won me my place on the course. But what little fiction I'd written was casual, self-indulgent, indistinguishable from that of hundreds of literature undergraduates of that era. I know this because I was forced to read it again recently when preparing my archive. (laughs) That summer, I saw humiliation looming one that was stretch on for 12 months of the course. A panic set in. Then a colleague at the Homelessness Project made a suggestion. She knew of a cottage in the middle of nowhere in Cornwall, on the westernmost tip of England. The couple there had until recently run a retreat for recovering drug addicts, but were now looking for paying guests at very reasonable rates. Why didn't I go there and, well, teach myself to write? So I hitchhiked down to Cornwall, under grey English summer skies, with a rucksack, a guitar, and a portable typewriter. I had long hair and a bandit moustache, but the cars kept stopping. This was still, after all, the 1970s. The cottage had thick stone walls and was indeed in the middle of nowhere. My host gave me three meals a day and offered to show me the local beauty spots. But for four weeks, I barely came out of my room. I set up my typewriter on a rickety wood table, sat down in the window seat, and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. My hosts, accustomed to recovering drug addicts, saw nothing unduly odd about my behavior. (laughs) And it was during those four weeks that I became a writer. I made discovery after discovery, not just about craft, But about which themes I was drawn to, about my relationship to stories, about what kind of writer I wanted to become. Along the way
0: to becoming the writer he is today, there were other revelations, ones that came in what Ishiguro calls small, scruffy moments. The kind of moments that, no matter your profession, may arrive without fanfare or they may defy the prevailing wisdom. If you're not careful to recognize them," he warned, they may just pass you by. Kazuo Ishiguro spoke about some of the revelations in his life as a writer when he sat down for a conversation with Gail Eikenthal for the Academy of Achievement. Gail started by asking Ishiguro about his childhood, which began in Nagasaki, Japan. His mother was a survivor of the atomic bomb attack that ended World War II. His father, who was an oceanographer, moved the family to England when Ishiguro was five. Gail Eikenthal wanted to know what effect that dual identity had on his stories and his novels.
1: I should emphasize, I've never been a writer that actually directly addresses what you might call the immigrant experience, um, or even uh, you know ethnic identity issues. Um, so it, it's more nuanced in my case. I, I almost predate The era when people thought thought in these kind of more politicized terms. Uh, Our family, I think, we were the only Japanese family. It felt to me like we were the only Japanese family in the whole country. Um, You know, uh, I very very rarely saw anybody who wasn't like a white English person where we were living. There seemed to be no uh, preconceptions on the part of um, the people of England at that time, about how they should behave towards people like us. My father was a scientist, um, and, um, you know, I, I actually, I, I fitted in very well in this small community in the home counties of England. I, I became a head choir boy in the local church choir, and, uh, uh, but I was the only kind of non-white kid, if you like, in in the area. So, um, So I think all these things in, uh, must have, had something to do with the way I looked at the world. I also, I think, looked at Britain through the eyes of my parents. I was a five-year-old boy when I arrived in Britain. I We spoke Japanese at home. I saw the world around me partially through my own experience, but also through the eyes of my parents who were expecting to return to Japan you know, within a few years. So we didn't have the attitude of people who had settled. It was very much more you know, the natives in this strange country, aren't they fascinating? And uh, I was always taught to be very respectful of their customs. And they'll say, oh, the English, you'd be careful, because the English think it's, you, you must always do this in that kind of situation. Although we don't. I don't think it would be right to say I was an outsider. But I knew, I knew that I was actually very conspicuous. Um, and that... I wouldn't call it fame, but just locally and at school, I was used to the idea that everybody knew who I was. I was the Japanese kid, and and I didn't know them, and that I was very conspicuous. And in many instances, I had a very small amount of time to either use that for myself or have it go against me. And so um, I I was—I think—I realized that, you know. um, um, So in that sense, I think I was aware of it. But the, I would say the English people of that time in the communities that I was in, this is from 1960 onwards, looking back now, they were remarkably open and tolerant when you think that this is only 15 years after the end of the Second World War.
0: Ishiguro says he wasn't interested in writing or even reading back then as a young schoolboy, aside from Westerns and James Bond stories. The first thing that genuinely kindled his ambition to do anything like what he does now came a little later in the mid nineteen sixties
1: is when i when I was thirteen and I became fascinated by uh, bob dylan um I'd been listening to kind of more kind of pop type music and then I came across bob dylan and um i was you know, because of my age, I was relatively late coming to him um but then I went back over his catalogue, and that's when I became fascinated by words, and, uh, and I discovered other great uh, singer-songwriters of that era, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, uh, some others, but these were very important people for me, because of this fascinating relationship between what seemed to be a very literary language, and the music form, and the way they performed it.
3: There is getting hotter There's a rumbling in the-
1: and uh, so that's what I wanted to be. It seemed it seemed to be the art form that that I, I aspire to. And I, I did spend some time playing in folk clubs and uh, to very small audiences. And I I've, I actually did a whole thing of carrying around demo tapes to recording companies and and, uh, making appointments with A&R men. I I did that whole thing, but uh, quite rightly, I got nowhere.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I think of those wonderful uh, folk performers and writers, a lot of their music is in the first person, and that
1: is a point of view that you have adopted, too, as a writer. Well, absolutely, I think I learned an awful lot from writing songs. I wrote over a hundred songs. I, I still write song lyrics, actually, for, uh, right now for, for the, um, Stacey Kent, the world, you know, Grammy-nominated jazz singer. Uh, but, uh, I, but back then, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, I, I, I wrote over a hundred songs, and I think that was part of my apprenticeship, to be a writer of fiction. And many of the things I learned writing songs or being this bad singer-songwriter I think became fundamental to, to my style as a fiction writer. And one of the things you point out there, there is something about that kind of singer-songwriter tradition that is very first person. More than that, I would say there is something of the atmosphere of, uh, that, of just one singer um, communicating with, with just a handful of people in a, in a room you know, with an acoustic guitar. That kind of atmosphere, that intimacy, is something I still go for uh, when when I'm writing a writing a novel. Also, I think there are many other things I learnt at that point. I think um, I think the fact that when you're writing a song, when you well, you don't have many words to use. I mean, you're very restri- you're very restricted in terms of the amount of words you can use. So, and because there is performance and music. Along with the words, you have to leave a lot of things out in the words. If the words are complete unto themselves, as, as poetry on the page would be, the thing will not work. And so, this idea that a lot of the, a lot of the emotion, a lot of the meaning of what you're doing, is is hidden, is between the lines. It necessarily had to be between the lines. You had to leave things. Not you, know, you had to leave things. You had to avoid making things too explicit in the words to to leave space for the for the performance, for the music and the performance, the singing if you like, and the music, so that so that they had something important to do. And I think these are all things that I took into my um, writing style, and I, I think that that remains you know core to my style today.
0: I'm going to interrupt the interview here for a moment because before we get to Gail Eichenthal's next question. I'm guessing you're at least a little curious to hear a Kazuo Ishiguro song. I don't have any access to his early Dylan-esque work, but I can play you one of the ones he wrote in recent years for jazz singer Stacey Kent. This is Breakfast on the Morning Tram.
3: So here you are in the city With a shattered heart, it seems So when you arrived you thought you'd have the holiday of your dreams You'd cry yourself to sleep if you could But you've been awake all night Well here's something you need to do At the first hint of morning light Walk right across the deserted city To the boulevard Amsterdam Wait there for what the citizens here refer to as the breakfast
0: tram.
2: I laughed out loud reading in another interview uh, for the Paris Review that, you know, another charm of, of the writings of Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan is that. Uh, no one can understand what they're talking about, and I I don't know if that was tongue-in-cheek, but there's certainly uh, an indirection to a lot of that work. Is that something you relate to?
1: I think I I related to that very much at the time, Uh, you know, because I was kind of like an adolescent, and the whole world was like that. I mean, it it seemed to kind of have meaning and not have meaning, and I, I kind of put it down to my not being mature enough to understand the world, you know, and so lyrics that that's that seemed to have intentionality and direction and authority but didn't make a whole lot of sense kind of summed up my experience in the world. You know, um, uh, and that that certainly was part of the appeal, I would say, for, for, for a lot of people of my age at the time, why we were drawn to the more, let's say, abstract songs of Dylan and Leonard Cohen rather than the more but rather than the clearer songs, like the protest songs that Dylan did earlier on, you know, everyone knows what that's about. But by the time you get to Blonde on Blonde or Highway 61, you know things start to become very modern and very abstract. And I think that was an exhilarating feeling, not just because of the age I was, but I think there's something to do with the era in which we lived in. There was a feeling that in the late 1960s, early 1970s, a whole world was opening up, which... Our parents didn't understand which we didn't understand but it was exciting and we wanted i think we wanted perhaps lyrics and art and art form that reflected that an exhilaration of adventure and exploration and meaning that is just slightly beyond our grasp for Kazuo Ishiguro it wasn't
0: that big a leap from writing songs to writing short stories and novels
1: i mean some writers they talk about their their early works and the juvenilia they they often talk about you know secret novels that are hidden somewhere in their house that's rather embarrassing. Um, I went through my adolescent autobiographical phase in those songs. So when I started to write fiction quite seriously, I, I came into at a later point. You know, I, I'd already f- gone through a lot of the typical phases, and I so my first novel. Uh, you know, it's told from the point of view of, of someone very different from me, living in a different era, you know, um, uh, a, a, a Japanese woman in her 60s, you know, recording the, the war years in Japan, uh, very different to who I was then, yeah. a, a young man living in England you know, um, in the 1970s. Um, but I, was a- I think I was able to do that because I'd worked through a lot of the typical stages that people go through.
2: Well, you must have been a reader to be able to teach yourself you know, an adequate technique, the idea of point of view, by yourself in that cottage. Uh, what, what did you read that you wanted to aspire to?
1: Well, um, I'd, I'd, be, I'd started to read a lot when I, when I did my first degree. I, I, I studied literature and philosophy at the University of Kent in Canterbury. And that's when I, I think, really discovered reading because, um, as I said, I wasn't a big reader when I was a child. Um, uh, I think, I, and I realise this because I, I re-read Jane Eyre recently by Charlotte Bronte, and I always suspected that she was the biggest influence on me. Um, it seems unlikely, but I always suspected that, and I, I used to say that in interviews, and people think I was just being smart and evasive, but uh, I reread um, Jane Eyre recently, and also Villette, her other great novel, and... I just came across you know, episode after episode where I thought, oh my goodness, I, I, I just ripped that off from, from this book. Um, um, not, perhaps you wouldn't recognize it, but I, I did. You know, I, I, uh, Certain kinds of techniques, certain moments when you understand that the narrator is crying, not because she tells you, but because somebody watching her makes a remark. You know, uh, all, all these little things that I thought, oh, I used that in that book, oh, that that's straight up. Um, I think Charlotte Bronte had an enormous influence on me. And I think it's something to do with that use of first person. Um, a very subtle use of, of the relationship between a narrator in the book and the reader. But I tell you, my favorite author, novelist, is somebody who you probably wouldn't think was anything, who had any relationship to me, which is Dostoevsky. I've always um, loved Dostoevsky. Ever since I first read him, and um, he was one of the one of the uh, uh, you know th- that was uh, he he I think he's one of the reasons I started to read you know when I read Crime and Punishment when I was about seventeen or eighteen, and um, Dostoevsky and Chekhov for me remain like two kind of at uh, two poles in in terms of a way you know way to approach things. I love the messiness of Dostoevsky, the improvised. Yeah, the, I mean, a lot of it is is a mess, but I, I like the way that strange, unexpected things have obviously come tumbling out for him, that he didn't want to necessarily have come tumbling out. On the other hand, you know, Chekhov, the, another great Russian writer, I've, exemplifies this kind of, you know, the calm, controlled, very carefully structured, understated kind of work, and I I, I aspire to them both, you know, they're, they're two of my great heroes.
0: On a more personal level, Kasuo Ishiguro credits the two main professors in the master's program he attended with giving him the space to find his own literary voice, Angela Carter and Malcolm Bradbury.
1: You know, there, were, there, were, there was no taught course element, we, had, we didn't have any exercises. Malcolm Bradbury believed in the, in the blank page. He told me this many times then and subsequently, he, he wanted to make people face the blank page. He wanted them to see what happened if for 12 months a lot of the excuses perhaps that they've been providing for themselves as to why they hadn't been getting on with their literary career, if those excuses were suddenly taken away, if they were given, given ideal conditions to write, would they turn out to be writers, would they really want to write? And I think this is one of the really valuable things about creative writing courses. I think people discover, it's a good chance for people to discover if they want to write. Because many people want to be writers, I think more so than ever now, because it's a glamorous and you know comfortable job if it works well. But um, a lot of people don't want to actually write, they just want to be writers. And you you can't really have that title unless you really want to write in a very deep sense, for its own sake, you know, the work for its own sake. And, and Malcolm believed in putting people in a very quiet, rather dull part of the country and giving them very little else to do other than produce some fiction. And sometimes a lot of people had a very painful experience, including in my year. They this carefully nurtured idea of themselves as, that they had of themselves as writers started to dissolve during that year. It was very painful for them, but I think you could argue that's a very important discovery for some people to make as well.
2: Especially when you're young.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, And this is one of the things that makes me wary of the creative writing industry at the moment. You know, to some extent, it preys on young people, not necessarily young people, all kinds of people's um, delusions uh, uh, as well as their ambitions. And if if you're encouraging people who really have a chance of doing something really good, that's fine, but if you're just doing it because you need to make money for your institution, and you're encouraging, particularly young people, at a crucial point in their lives to devote their time and energy to an activity when they could perhaps be studying something else or going a different path. I mean, you know, so, I. I, 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 have, I have all kinds of reservations about it, but when it works, it works very, very well. It certainly worked
0: well for him. While he was still in the program, his first stories were published, and he signed a contract to finish his first novel, A Pale View of the Hills. Even before he'd entered the master's program, Kazuo Ishiguro had met someone else who would be important in his writing life, his wife, Lorna McDougall.
1: My wife has been my consistent critic from before I started to write. You know, we, We've been together for a, a very long time. and uh, So when she sees my writing, she doesn't see the writing of some kind of you know, famous writer or anything like this. It, I'm still this upstart kid, this um, failed singer-songwriter who is having a go at writing fiction. So she criticizes me in exactly the same way that she did uh, when we were back then, you know, when I was just starting that course at East Anglia. Well, I gather you uh,
2: take her criticism quite seriously.
1: I, well, we've known each other long enough so that we, we know where we differ you know, fundamentally. So I can kind of, some things she says, I think, oh, well, that's our usual. You know, we, we've agreed to disagree on that kind of thing. You know. uh, but there are many things we agree about. And so if it's on that territory and she says something, However painful it is, I, I have to, um, I have to, well, I'm tempted to say I have to obey, but I, but I have to listen. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure if your question is alluding to what was very widely publicized about my latest novel, The Buried Giant. Um, she, she told me to abandon it after I've been working for a year and a half on it, because in its current form, it just would not do. She said it just, really just would not do. Um, and this was slightly distressing for me, but I, I did as she, uh, she suggested. I, I just stopped it, and I went and wrote another book. And then I came back to it, you know, fresh. You know. um, that that's that's one of the more extreme things. But um, now I think all all of my you know books like *The Remains of the Day*. I mean, um, uh, uh, I think the ending wouldn't be the ending we have now if she she hadn't told me I had to go off and do the ending again. You
2: You had unusually early success as a writer of fiction, um, having your first novel picked up and then the second novel won uh, major awards um, and then, of course, Remains of the Day, winning the Booker Prize. What do you suppose of that great good fortune near the beginning of your career, what
1: effect might that have had
2: on you as a writer?
1: I, I felt it was almost entirely positive for me. Um, uh, it, I felt it took pressure off me. You know, I didn't have to worry about winning prizes. There was something about the climate in those days. Literary prizes had always been around in Britain as well as in the United States, everywhere else, but somehow they came, in, came into the public eye in a big way around the time when I started to write. Um, the idea that novelists could almost be showbiz, you know, was introduced into the in, into the kind of air, and people were being signed up for big advances and so on, and the, and the book prizes became quite glamorous things in, the, in that era. And so if you were seen to be a kind of rising young novelist, the, there was an enormous pressure on you in terms of prizes. Um, you know, I think that there is a parallel here with, with uh, rising classical musicians. They have to win you know, music competitions. For their all, something almost like that was going around, I would say, in Britain um, in the 1980s. And so I felt that winning all the major prizes by the, by the time I was in my mid-thirties just took away that pressure. You know? Because I, I, I always feared that it, it would distort my artistic direction. It would make me cowardly, it would make me play safe. My novels could become a series of applications for prizes, you know, trying to second guess what what uh, juries would like and what they wouldn't like. And so, looking back now, I, I feel it was a real blessing that I, you know, I got the prizes out of the way. Because I, I never expected to win the Nobel, so I thought by the time I won the Booker, at the age of 34, I thought, well, I've done the prizes, now I can can just forget about prizes, you know. Uh, And I think that's quite important, because I think there's something about writing. One of the great joys and powerful things about writing is is, it's it's a solo activity. You know, I I love cinema, I love, you know, I admire theater. These are collaborative art forms, uh, and they produce great work. But um, there's some there's something special for me about the fact that when someone writes a novel, every, you know it's just one person. When I'm reading a, a novel, I'm read I'm communicating with just a single consciousness. And I think for that reason, we shouldn't think too much about the worldly aspect of a writing career when we're trying to create. And it's very difficult not to, you know, uh, live, if you're human. And to be liberated from worrying about where you are in the pecking order, you know. Um, I think I think that that for me was a was a tremendous freedom.
2: Turning to remains of the day, uh, I was rereading it in preparation for our interview, and something that struck me immediately that I'm not sure I noticed the first time around was how you. It's not only in the first person, uh, in the voice of this very correct English butler would think fairly far removed from your own life. But there's a way you pull the reader in as well. So the reader is sort of part of the story. He talks about, um, I'm sure you know some of the great butlers of our day, and um, I'm sure you, you realize how important it is to have a, a staff plan. You know, the reader is in on it. Is that conscious that you're kind of pulling us in that way?
1: Yeah, it is very conscious. It's, 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 a, it's a technique thing. You know, um, uh, uh, it, and it's not the, the you that the narrator in The Remains of the Day, for instance, addresses. That you isn't the reader. Uh, in all these books, um, what I, tried, I, I like the idea of the narrator addressing a you because their perspective is so small that they can't imagine that they're addressing anybody outside of their very small world and so, Stevens is a butler. The you he addresses is another butler, or at least another house servant of some sort, you know, who, who lives in this world of serving in country houses. What the reader is doing is, the reader is kind of eavesdropping on a conversation between this butler and another butler. You know, that, that's the effect I, I, want to, I want to give.
3: In Lord Darlington's days, when ladies and gentlemen would often visit for many days on end, It was possible to develop a good understanding with visiting colleagues. Indeed in those busy days our servants hall would often witness a gathering of some of the finest professionals in England talking late into the night by the warmth of the fire. And let me tell you if you were to have come into our servants hall on any of those evenings you would not have heard mere gossip. More likely you would have witnessed debates over the great affairs preoccupying our employers upstairs, or else over matters of import reported in the newspapers. And of course, as fellow professionals from all walks of life are wont to do when gathered together, we could be found discussing every aspect of our vocation.
0: That was an excerpt from the audiobook version of Remains of the Day.
1: These books are are to a large extent about what happens when your perspective is very narrow? Uh, books like *The Remains of the Day* and the one before that—they're they're about people who, who desperately want to contribute something uh, to the good of the world. You know, they want to be proud of how their work contributed to something good. And they—and they're in many ways they're very decent people, but because they're they're not remarkable in their perceptive powers because their perspective is so parochial and small they cannot see where they fit in in the larger historical context and they and their lives they find that their lives are compromised they have contributed to unwittingly to bad or indeed evil things and it's just that they are unlucky stevens is unlucky because he happened to live through those fascist years and uh, he he it's not his fault in a way but you know his his career his best efforts have, have, are entwined with those of the man he served as a butler who who in this case turned out to be a Nazi sympathizer and so in all of these books it's very important to me to suggest the, the narrow perspective, the small world that he cannot see beyond. Um, and this is kind of one of the things that I'm trying to portray. I'm trying to say that we are all of us. We all of us struggle to see beyond our small worlds.
2: There's such a built-in poignancy to the fact that he is so obsessive about being a, a fine butler that he sort of forgets to have a life of his own. He comes very close to love, and it doesn't quite happen. And it's a sense of almost giving up your life for your work and your self-delusion.
1: Many of us do that. I mean, I think that the modern world is, that. that's part of what the modern world is, it seems to me. Um, and it's, um, it's not because he's a wage slave, it's not because he, you know, he needs to make the money, it's because he, it matters to him, it really matters to him that he does his work well. His sense of dignity, his sense of self-respect comes from that. But somehow being the perfect butler as he defines it seems to preclude human love. Um, it precludes a lot of things. Um, but it seems to me, a lot of us, you know, a lot of people I meet, um, we, we, live in that, we live that kind of life now. I think there are many pressures in the modern world that uh, perhaps even more so than when I wrote that novel, push people to have those kinds of priorities.
2: You wrote a remarkable article uh, that uh, confessed, having written that book in about four weeks in what you called a crash program
1: I didn't literally write it in four weeks. It, it, I, was, I was asked to, to write a little piece about the writing of The Remains of the Day. And uh, a key point was that when I kind of experimented with this idea, my wife colluded in this, that I should actually cut myself off from the outside world well for four weeks, as much as was possible. And so I didn't answer the phone, I didn't go outside. I had an hour off for lunch, two hours for dinner, then I'd go back to work again. Um, I think I used to just get Sundays off, but um the idea was what would happen if I absolutely incarcerated myself into a tiny room uh, would Would the fictional world become more real than the world outside you know um and I think it it worked very well in that in those four weeks, I think I had all the the foundation for the book you know. Then I had to kind of go back and, um, uh, uh, you know, figure things out, make it more stylish, get that voice right. But all the important things, all the important central artistic decisions were made in those four weeks. Um, Preceded
2: by a lot of research, right?
1: Yes, yes, yes. This is a big question. Um, I've never quite figured this out. When is the best time to actually start doing the actual writing? You know, the writing of the words that go into the book never mind how many drafts you're going to do, when do you actually start the proper writing? Uh, if you start too early, you can't write certain kinds of books. You know, you can't write that kind of very carefully structured novel where something that happens on page 28 is picked up again on page 94 and there's a tremendous reverberation. You can't set things up in that way. You can kind of just improvising, uh, But you can get some kind of strange force out of that kind of serendipity and improvisation. And you can bypass your own senses, in a way, and surprise yourself, even shock yourself with what comes out. You know. However, as I say, you don't have the same kind of control. And so that question of you know, how much should you know about your story, how much research should you have done, Not just I don't just mean into the historical background, I mean research into the characters, the relationship, the relationship your fictional world would have to everyday reality, you know, um, all these things. How much of that should you already know before you actually start the book? And I've never been able to get settle on a consistent rule about this. And I think this is one of the most important decisions for any novelist, putting, your, putting yourself on that, uh, you know, somewhere on that spectrum. Are you one of the writers, at least for this book, that starts with almost no idea uh, and then you end up with something beautifully messy that that you can then shape and reshape if you want. Or do you p- do quite a lot of planning? Do you know quite a lot of things? And then you, you proceed quite carefully. And there's pros and cons to, to both approaches. Uh, so the remains of the day, I had to do a lot of just straightforward kind of historical research as a scholar would do. You know, I read a lot of, I was in the library a lot reading about I was reading actually you know, things written at the time, in the 1920s, 1930s, political pamphlets, um, biographies of non-entities who thought they were terribly important They'll read, you know, write their autobiography. Um, there were a lot of aristocrats in Britain who felt you know, the world should know all about them. But actually, the, 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 they were very revealing. Um, you know, I, I read fascinating things like Sir Oswald Molesley's um, autobiography mostly was the, the British fascist, the leader of the British Union of Fascists. Um, his kind of justifications for for what he'd done You know, later in life. These things were all fascinating. Um, so I did an enormous amount of historical research. Some of it was just in, for my interest, but then um, at some point I had to start writing my novel, and I did this crash.
2: You mentioned uh, in this piece about Remains of the Day the impact of a song by Tom Waits that's almost unbearably poignant. Yeah.
1: Well, actually, I had I had done what I thought was more or less a finished version of the remains of the day, but the the very buttoned up narrator, the butler, he in that earlier version he doesn't quite come through confessing his true emotions. He he. He maintains his uh, front a little bit more effectively than he does in the final version. Uh, and what made me change my mind uh, was that um, between that penultimate version and the final version I handed in, I listened to a song by Tom Waits, one, one of the, another great singer-songwriter, remarkable artist. And it's a, I was listening to a song called Ruby's Arms, but it could have been any number of Tom Waits songs. And in the middle of that, it's a song about a soldier that is just leaving, or somebody you know, just leaving his girlfriend, sneaking out in the morning to get on a train. There's a moment in that when Waits sings, although my heart was breaking. And it's not so much the words themselves, it's the way he sings them because Waits sings, his voice sounds like kind of a really rough, tough, hobo type character not accustomed to re- revealing his emotions at all and it's the way that this this emotion seems to break through all his customary defenses
3: I will leave behind all of-
1: And this is all in that voice. You know that that is not the voice of a man who normally talks about his own heartbreak. But it, he just cannot hold it back anymore. And this is the power of song when it's sung by a great singer and, and, and he writes great songs. You can do this. And, and I thought, oh, you know, I'd love to... Can I do something equivalent in my novel? Right, it's a novel, there is no singer, but I've maintained this very buttoned up repressed, you might say, a controlled voice of a narrator all the way through. I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't I let him just break through? Shouldn't I let the big, big emotion break through just once? And would it have an equivalent effect, you know? Uh, and so I, I changed things a little bit. You know, I, I had a I I allowed that armor to be pierced.
3: Miss Kenton fell silent again for a moment. Then she went on. But that doesn't mean to say, of course, there aren't occasions now and then. I- extremely desolate occasions. When you think to yourself, what a terrible mistake I've made with my life. And you get to thinking about a, a different life, a, a better life you might have had. For instance, I, I get to thinking about a life I may have had with you, Mr. Stevens. And I suppose that's when I get angry over some trivial little thing, and leave. But each time I do so, I realise before long my rightful place is with my husband. After all, there's no turning back the clock now. One can't be forever dwelling on what might have been. One should realise one has had as good as most, perhaps better, and be grateful. I do not think I responded immediately for it took me a moment or two to fully digest these words of Miss Kenton. Moreover, as you might appreciate, their implications were such as to provoke a certain degree of sorrow within me. Indeed, why should I not admit it? At that moment, my heart was breaking.
2: I want to touch on uh, Never Let Me Go, uh, which almost has a science fiction feel. Uh, it takes us to another world. Where did that come from?
1: Well, Never Let Me Go, I'm trying to think. I think I, it was published in 2005. I started to write it, I think, about 2001. Now, now the date is very important because I would say from, for a lot of my literary life up to that point, I was under the impression that science fiction was a kind of a genre I shouldn't go near. But then I started to make friends with uh, writers who who I really admired, who were about 15, 16 years younger than me. Uh, The novelist David Mitchell, um, Alex Garland, who wrote The Beach and is now a a terrific uh, film director, he made the movie Ex Machina recently, directed and wrote it. Um, and he indeed adapted Never Let Me Go for the Screen uh, as a screenwriter. Uh, but when I first met these guys, they, they did not have this prejudice about science fiction. Far from it. They, they, they were lapping it up hungrily for inspiration. They seemed to like um, uh, graphic novels or comics. And I could see a, a huge energy coming from from this generation, and they showed me that it was all right. In fact, it was more than all right. It was almost, it was almost foolish not not to pay attention to, to this whole body of literature. And I think around that time too, I started. And of course, like everybody, you know, I, I became aware that the world was actually changing rapidly. You know, the, the information revolution, that you know, the technological, information revolution was all around us. Remarkable things were happening in biotechnology. Um, artificial intelligence. Suddenly, sci-fi, apart, you know, far from being some sort of um, low-brow, geeky, despised genre, seemed to be the natural place one should look. Never Let Me Go was a novel I had tried to write twice before, in, um, several years earlier, and I just could not get... I could not get the metaphorical world in which the book could take place. I toyed with the idea of um, young people who, who came across nuclear materials, and so their their lifespans had been limited. It didn't really work, and I tried various things like that. Um, it, it's only when I, when I thought actually it's all right to kind of do science fiction. Around that time, um, a sheep had been created, Dolly the sheep, through purely through genetic cloning, um, I thought well if, if my characters were clones who were created solely to provide organs and uh, and that, and that they were their fate was to lose organs gradually as they well, while they were still young, um, I thought, well actually this is kind of like sci-fi but this is there's something awfully familiar about this concept it's actually. It's the human condition. All of us. We have limited we know that we have limited lives and that even if we're lucky, at some point we're gonna lose control over bits of ourselves physically, and and then we'll go. And so the big question becomes, you know, what what is important when you realize your your time is limited? So I thought I'll create this very strange concertina version of a human lifespan in the in Never Let Me Go. That's a Let's have young people who are effectively old people. You know, let, let's take them through all those stages that the lucky ones go through in you know, 70, 80, 90 years. Take, take them through that in 25 years. You know, what, what really matters to human beings?
2: Well, you make them very human. and you know, There's a while before we realize what's going on. We're a little confused for a while. Um, Um, That sense of humanity, I wonder how much uh, that might have been influenced by your work with the homeless as a young man. That was the environment where you met your wife, who was a social worker. Um, That's a unique slice of humanity, isn't it?
1: I guess so, but I, I wouldn't say my work with the homeless people directly affected that book. I mean, the way I saw the world, the way I grew up, I worked, all in all, I worked with homeless people for about a total of two years. I mean, um, I, I think in a way, and I, I feel slightly guilty about this. I feel guilty about the fact that I learned so much about people suffering in different kinds of ways uh, in a very short period of time. It's only, if somebody devised a, a kind of a course, like a university course, to allow you to get an insight, into how how ordinary people just break up un, under the, just the pressure of life then then you, you could do a lot worse than than work work in a homelessness project and um, I, I was living and working in this hostel where people were were coming in and and i learned a lot from those people those people a lot of those people were intelligent and perceptive i, I kind of a part of me feels like i exploited them you know that that i <laughs> I watched them, I saw them at their most vulnerable. Um, I listened to their stories. I left and then became a novelist. Um, so there's a part of me that I kind of make it a rule. I've never written directly about homeless people. And, uh, but obviously it affects the way I see things, the way I see society, the way I see political structures. Um, but I, I, to this day I've never written directly about those people, or, 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 or the work I did there.
2: In a way, isn't, isn't all of writing fiction revealing yourself? You might be hiding behind another point of view, or another narrator, a middle-aged woman, in your first novel, Pale View of Hills. But you are always revealing yourself what interests you,
1: what moves you.
2: Is that, is that true?
1: I think that's very fair and that's very true. I'm not the kind of writer who directly reveals something about myself autobiographically through an auto-ego character. You know, you, I, don't, I think you'll struggle to find any character who's, who's kind of like me in, in real life. But my books, the, those novels are, are me. You know, I express myself through those novels as a whole. You know, not through any single character. Um, the emotions I try and express, the perspectives I try and present—they—they are what I—they're they're who I am. What, what I'm trying to say is: this is how I feel about life. You know, I presented you with a kind of story about a certain area of my experience, and these are the feelings I have about it. Don't you feel that too? And, and that's not a rhetorical question. I'm actually really asking that. I'm saying, look, do, is it just me, or do you feel this too? Um, do we have a point of connection here? I mean, yeah, there's a, obviously there's an element of novels because they use words that, 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 that might be, um, that contain argument or that represent a piece of history about the real world out there. But essentially, I'm a writer of fiction. I'm not an essayist. I'm not a historian. I write fiction which means I'm trying to connect with people through feelings.
2: There's a passage early on in uh, Atonement Ian McEwan's novel where the young woman who is um, an aspiring writer talks about how in some ways fiction is more true than non-fiction in that sense that you have just described. In a way the soul not just the facts.
1: Well, we need both, of course, don't we? I mean, it's, 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 we, we can't get by in the world simply with facts. I mean, we need the facts. They're, in some ways, you'd argue that you know, they've become more elusive than ever right now. But we also need to know what it feels like to live with those facts. It's not just enough to know that some people are hungry. We have to have a sense of the pain of being hungry.
2: I want to get to your recent uh, award. (laughs) It's been a very positive week for you. uh, As we sit here in uh, the middle of October 2017, you won the Nobel Prize a week ago. (laughs) Um, What was that like? How did you, what were you doing when you got the call?
1: Well, the eccentric thing about the, uh, uh, the Swedish Academy is that they announce the uh, winner of the Nobel Prize. I don't know what they do in the other categories, but as far as literature is concerned, they, they like to announce it to the world press before they let the actual recipient know. And so I'm not the kind of person who gets up in the morning wondering if I've won the Nobel Prize. I, I didn't know that the announcement was going to be that day. I didn't know anything. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't in my mind. It wasn't on my horizon. I, I was just having a normal day I came down, I, I hadn't had a shower, I, I was, I think I, I was, my breakfast stuff was around me, I was writing an email at the kitchen table, and, uh, and, the, and the phone rang, it wasn't the Swedish Academy, it was people, you know, various people who had heard the announcement made in Swedish and thought they heard my name in the middle of all that Swedish, but they weren't sure, you know, so it was very uncertain. And uh, this long email I was writing to a friend in China actually tails off. I and mean, we were going through a lot of stuff. It actually tells that I'm, I've got to go now. I, I might have won the Nobel Prize, <laughs> and that's. I mean, it was literally like that. And within the alarming thing was within about half an hour, um, there was a, a long line of um, press people with cameras and things, um, you know, from our front door going up this suburban street and. Uh, I don't know what the neighbors thought had happened. They probably thought I'd turn into an axe murderer and I was going to be <laughs> let out, you know, handcuffed and, with a raincoat over my head. And I was, I was in the house alone. I, I, I had no... Um, you know, I had to actually um, call the hairdresser where my wife was. She was about to change her hair colour. And, uh, uh, and she had been building up to changing her hair colour for about two months. This was the big moment for her. And I had to actually pull her out of the hairdresser. I said, look, I need some help here. Yeah, you know, I, I, I I can't cope with this. Um, and, and she came, and, and then and then somebody came from the publisher. My agent came. And we had a press conference in the back garden. Uh, that's how chaotic it was. It was absolutely crazy.
2: Did you get a shower before the press no.
1: conference? No, no, no. I mean, all the photographs, I mean, there I am, you know. Just the way I was that morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the lesson I learned from that is, you know, have a shower early. You know, do not <laughs> uh, do not sit at the kitchen table, assuming that um, yeah you know, there'll be time yeah you know, after breakfast. I mean there won't be. Do it first thing, just in case you're given the Nobel Prize and the world's press turns up in your garden.
0: That's novelist, songwriter, and Nobel Prize winner Kazuo Ishiguro. There's something sweet and fitting that he won the year after his earliest literary inspiration, Bob Dylan. Kazuo Ishiguro spoke to the Academy of Achievement in 2017. You can learn more about him and all of our inspiring featured guests at Achievement.org. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. Funding for what it takes comes from the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening.